Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Today we are looking at Tenguttara Nikaya Book of Fives, Sutta 25, Anugahita Sutta. very short sutta, but it happens to be another one that Ajahn Tong often refers back to. As we go through here, I can recognize some of the teachings that I received and that we all heard often in Thailand from Ajahn Tong. So it's always good to pick out those that your teacher emphasized. So the sutta goes Panchahi bhikkhuve angehi anugahita Supported by five factors O monks Samaditi Right view Jeto vimuti palao chahuti Is Or has as its fruit uh, has as its result freedom of mind has as its fruit freedom of mind jeto vimuti jeto vimuti palani sangsaja has how does he translate it? Mm -hmm. As its fruit and benefit. Okay, fine. Basically leads to freedom of mind and freedom freedom through mind and freedom through medit through wisdom. Or liberation. So what this means if you're not clear on the diff the distinction here, liberation by mind refers to samatha meditation or it at least refers to depends how it's used but it's at least used for someone who has previously practiced samatha but i think when they're when they're coupled here we have to think of it like that so it leads to um, tranquilizing freedom through tranquilizing the mind and freedom through understanding so samatha and vipassana, basically. And these five are sila, sutta, sagacha, samatha, vipassana. Silang, morality. Suttang, and learning sagacha discussion or dialogue samatha tranquility and vipassana insight these five factors 
support right view so what does this mean well right view right view is like the head of the path it's the leader it's what leads us right view is that which leads you anywhere or view is what leads you anywhere right your views and your beliefs inform your actions direct your actions your behavior direct your your intentions your ambitions it's all based on views so these five support right view and I guess by that you could understand they create right view they strengthen your view and make it right. I think that's a good way of looking at this. It's certainly how Ajahn Tong approaches it, or would used to approach it. These are things which, in a sense, lead to right view. Without these, our views tend to be crooked, skewed, wrong. And as a result, everything we do is skewed, wrong. So silang. Sila is... Sila is, an, is the uh, bodily and verbal actions, activities that we perform our acts and our speech. And the idea here is not not only that, or that not only do our, our beliefs inform our actions, but our actions actually skew our beliefs. Um, and it's kind of a vicious cycle of sorts. So absolutely, you, you wouldn't be immoral if you had right view. But immorality keeps you from cultivating right view. Sometimes you have to take things on advisement. I want to say faith, but I don't want to push too far. You have to take other people's advice about morality. So, so keeping the five precepts is, for many people, incomprehensible or, or seemingly without reason, right? We don't know why we're not killing or stealing. Or maybe we have some vague understanding or People tell us that it's wrong, so we say, okay, well, maybe it is. Because we ourselves don't have any clear understanding, but we certainly can't refute when people say, because it kind of sounds wrong. But once you start to keep moral precepts, I, I mean, a big reason is because morality leads to concentration, right? When you stop killing and stealing and cheating and lying and taking drugs and alcohol and doing all sorts of other immoral, unethical acts, you start to calm down. Your mind starts to be more focused, more organized. You're not full of anger and greed. 
in delusion. And so right view comes about, first of all, right view comes about in regards to morality because you start to see the benefits. But more deeply, um, you're able to see things more clearly. You have a more, a more rational perspective. That's why things are called unethical. You know, there's no, this isn't some magic or some God-given set of precepts. This is really the definition of ethical behavior. That there are, that are that behaviors. Um, not only expressions of wrong view, but the defilements behind them. So the unethical mind states that drive us to do these things. Um, well, are are augmented by giving into them and by performing these things. When you kill, it's based on a desire to kill, but the killing itself is an indulging in the desire to kill or the anger, the hatred. And so by refraining, you begin to curb your habits, your bad habits. Sila is sort of the, the last ditch, the, the stopgap or the course, course abstention from evil doesn't stop you from thinking and from thinking evil evil uh, thoughts but it begins to rein it in because your your evil thoughts have no longer have the outlet that they had and so you're forced to struggle with them and as a result you come to see that they're wrong this is why those therapies that encourage you to express yourself if you're angry go shout into a paper bag or something or go and hit a punching bag when you want to beat someone up go and it doesn't really work that way you're giving in to your emotions you're not doing anything to curb them or deal with them you're indulging them so that's in a sense that would be unethical behavior absolutely but there's something even worse worse about actually hurting other people because in your mind you're clear about the fact that you do what you're doing is hurt is harming another so at any rate all of this is regards to behavior the outlet for your cruelty the giving into your cruelty the giving into your addiction and so on and the reaffirming mind states of greed anger and delusion so it keeps you from seeing things clearly. That's a definite important teaching in Buddhism. Something to keep in mind. Not only do they come from wrong view, but they keep you from ever cultivating right view. Our actions and our speech. Because we're so caught up in them. Okay, that's the first one. The second one, suttang. Suttang means learning. So this one should be clear. We can't just figure things out by ourselves often. Some people can. Some very, very special, very, very exceptional individuals, we call them Buddhas, or Bodhisattvas perhaps. 
but um, the vast, vast, vast majority of people have to have to learn. You could even argue that even a Buddha, to become a Buddha, they have to learn from others. They do learn things from others. It's a support for their practice. They don't learn from enlightened beings, perhaps, but they learn from unenlightened beings. But here we're thinking of specifically Buddhists, people who follow a Buddha and to learn about his teachings. So learning about his teachings, I mean, this is, should be obvious because the idea is by re relating this teaching of the Buddha, it's going to help us cultivate right view. You have to listen. You don't think that you can just find the truth by yourself. It's the worst type of arrogance to think that you can, to think that you can become enlightened without any help without listening to others without support without a teacher suttang but the third one is less less heard or less thought about less talked about sagacha which means dialogue it's different from listening sutta means listening sagacha means discussing asking why we have to let our meditators ask us questions why we have to have these question and answer sessions because the Buddha told us that it's important in our tradition it's actually I think our tradition is fairly exceptional in its usage of, of dialogue to promote meditation and the, the, the progress in meditation this daily interview it's not it's not that common in other traditions they might you know meet with you but they won't you know, just tell you to keep going or they'll have group interviews or they won't even have interviews they'll just have a dhamma talk maybe every day or every week but this tradition has it may not be clear to, to all people we have a a strong tradition and a strong process uh, of instruction on how to conduct interviews. So there are actually manuals on this. And there's, uh, there's a tradition of listening in. So I spent a full year, hours every day, listening to meditator after meditator undergo this interview. And that's why in many cases I can repeat verbatim the sorts of things my teacher said because he said them over and over again and uh, so we take that quite seriously and, and it, it, it's to some extent I think why uh, I feel comfortable answering people's questions because you have to, you have to learn how to be comfortable and because you've listened to a lot of question answering I was I was for a long time much more comfortable answering questions than giving talks. Giving a talk seemed daunting, and it's funny in our tradition you wouldn't you would be surprised. But when I was a young monk in our monastery, all the monks were deathly afraid of giving talks, and you could you could hardly find a single monk 
who would give a Dhamma talk and they had to find monks every week to give Dhamma talks. So all the, all the scholarly monks, because there was a, a monastic school in our monastery, they would all give the talks. And they hadn't a clue how to teach. They would teach just dull and boring or, or humorous and funny and insubstantial or, or meaningless talks. They would talk about themselves a lot. But the guys who could really, you know, you'd really think could teach, none of them were at all proficient in it or, or even comfortable doing it. The only reason I could, the only reason I can give talks, and I think I can give okay talks once in a while, is because I worked really hard at it, started doing it. But in, in our tradition, we're big on this dialogue. So you know, I, I relate this because I see the importance, and I think people in our tradition see the importance of that. I guess, in a sense, what I'm doing is promoting our and saying how great we are how great our tradition is but um, let's not go there let's just say it is important and we see in this tradition the, the benefit of it I mean you'll often hear meditators who've done it who have practiced in various traditions will say you know they really appreciate having one-on-one -on -one dialogue with their teacher um, another funny story about this one is in Thailand uh, when this when this was new to Thailand, I mean, because it wasn't the way of teaching meditation, and certainly having lay people come into the monastery and stay and and uh, do courses, especially women, it wasn't the thing, you know. And in what Matat Lumpur Chodok would, um, he opened up the Uposita Hall, the ordination hall. He opened it up to to meditators. They just needed space. They had no space for them, and so many lay people wanted to come and learn insight meditation. It just exploded. It became a really big thing, and so they thought, "Well, we got this huge uposita hall, and the, the uposita hall in Wat Mahat is really huge." Uh, and so they opened it up and let meditators taught meditation in there. I think they even had the meditators. No, I'm not sure about that. Maybe staying in there to some extent, but. Um, Anyway, so the, so the other monks from other traditions were were deriding this um, reporting. Sop arom. Sop sop means sop means uh, test. It's a word that is often used to mean test. When you sop uh, in Thai, it means you take an exam. So they were deriding it, saying, "There's." And I, I actually listened to a recording. I was listening to this monk, really good monk, teaching suttas, different tradition, Dhammayut, I think. But he was teaching these. So he did a really good job relating sutta after sutta. And there's like he had these D, uh, CD, CD audio, maybe it was MP3 even, but just hours and hours of the suttas. It was really great to listen to. But I stopped listening to it because I came to one and I just couldn't take it, take it after that. He totally trashed the Mahasi Sayada tradition. He said, "This sop alum, you can't sop. There's no, there's no sop. Uh, there's no passing or failing." He took it to mean that you're testing the meditator and you're going to give them an exam. He said, "You can't fail meditation. So how could you take an exam?" So he completely misunderstood. He said, "This is a Burmese thing," and and I kind of got. That this, but there was context here, and it was actually a thing because Lumpo Chodok said, 
he explained it, he said, this isn't a Burmese thing. He said, this is from the time of the Buddha. Uh, so, um, after the Buddha became enlightened, he went and taught, of course, the five monks. And so we know about this first discourse that the Buddha gave. He, he taught them the Four Noble Truths. He taught them the Middle Way. It's the famous sutta that gives us not going to the extremes of torturing yourself or indulging in sensuality. But then after that, if you read the, the texts, it says he spent five days, five days, I think, some, somewhere around five days, um, teaching them. And he would meet with them individually. So he would go to them when they had a problem and he would ask them questions and they would ask him questions. And you see this throughout the suttas. He would go to them and he would ask, you know, having a problem with this. Of course, the Buddha could read their minds, so he didn't have to ask them, how is your practice? But at times, he did ask things like that. Are you doing okay? And, and he would let them a ask him questions. And they would let him, he would let them express their meditation. And uh, it's, it's, it's sad, really. You, you get this kind of prejudice because, and, and as I said, people don't take this word seriously enough. This is what the Buddha is talking about, sagacha. It's different from just listening to a Dhamma talk, and it's one of the five most important things according to this sutta for cultivating right view. You can't just give talks and expect people to pick up the truth. You have to answer their questions. So that's number three. Number four and number five are well, things we talk about a lot, so I probably don't have to go into much detail, but we have samatha and vipassana, and these are the two culprits that come up and everybody wants to debate and discuss about these. What does samatha mean? What does vipassana mean? And we have views and ideas about them. But it's neat that they're quite often paired together so we understand that it shouldn't be about um, separating them. You know, the, only, the big problem that we cause uh, when, we, when we look at the commentaries and when we go by the orthodox, orthodox understanding in Theravada Buddhism is that we make a claim that there are certain types of meditation that won't lead to insight. That's the only thing. That there are certain types of meditation that won't lead to insight. And it's, I think it's quite reasonable to suggest that. Um, that there are meditations that tranquilize the mind but don't lead to insight, and it's because they don't focus on reality. I mean, the Buddha seemed quite clear about that, and this is something you have to be careful about. Samatha meditation um, and we call it that because it's those meditations that we say don't lead to insight, not directly anyway. Um, so it can help with wrong with with cultivating right view. I think it's even called jhana samaditi. There's right view that comes from the jhanas because it teaches you about the mind. It helps you understand wholesome and unwholesome. Because the jhanas are quite wholesome absorption, when your mind becomes and it goes into a trance, it's quite wholesome there's nothing unwholesome about it it's just that it's limited it's a worldly, mundane wholesome state so much more important for us is the kind of samatha that comes together with vipassana and this involves the quieting of the mind but it's the quieting of the mind coupled with vipassana or even through vipassana. 
through seeing things as they are, through meditating on reality and giving up our prejudices and our views and our reactions, our judgments, our partialities. When you give all that up, of course, your mind quiets down. And you need a quiet mind to see clearly. There's no question that if your mind is all flustered and rattled and distracted and well, caught up in the five hindrances, basically. Samatha means quenching or quelling or suppressing the five hindrances. That's what samatha is. What is the definition of tranquility? Your mind is tranquil when it doesn't have any of the five hindrances. So when your mind has the five hindrances, you can't see clearly. You can't cultivate vipassana. You certainly can't cultivate right view. That's important. Right view doesn't come just from thinking. We're so ill-equipped as ordinary people without the Buddha's help to really understand the world. We maybe get lucky and hit upon a good idea and come up with some profound thoughts, but they're easily lost and they're limited and they're skewed because our ordinary mind is incapable of understanding deep right view, deeply the nature of reality capable of knowing what's to its own benefit, what's to its detriment, and capable of seeking out enlightenment. It's, it's not, it's, it's not uh, something that's out of our, our grasp, it's just the point is you can't just sit and come across right view. You have to cultivate the, the mind that is able to understand right view, your quality of mind quality of your thoughts is important, not just that you are thinking or that you are investigating. Your knife has to be sharp if it's going to cut. You can't just cut. So, samatha and vipassana. Good to remember these things. Good to stick to the, to understand what is really and truly important. Often these lists are good for rooting out what is unimportant. We don't have to think about those things, just think about these things. What's one of the great things of, of the Buddha's teaching is that it's so simple at times. And it, uh, it's so, so clear. And you've got a clear list here. It's like you come to meditate, what do I have to do? So many things. And then you have a list of things. You have, you have the highlights pointed out to you. You have the important aspects of mental development made clear to you. It's quite a useful thing. So that's our Dhamma for tonight. Five things that support right view and, and allow your view to lead you to enlightenment. Silang suttang sagacha samatha vipassana. Apologies for last night. It was a long day. I had a conference all day and then a meeting after that. And I was here, but uh, I lay down at the end of my sitting meditation. And I fell asleep for about a half an hour. And I woke up and it was already 9.20 and I thought, oh, I missed my 9 o'clock appointment. 
Yes, I am human. Apologies for that. I have questions tonight. It's good. It's good to be good to be to be unsure, to not have this certainty. Yeah. We have questions, Pante. Pante, yesterday you referred to a lazy, tired, exhausted mind state possibly coming from too much concentration and not enough effort while explaining sloth and torpor. I didn't quite get this. My surface, le surface level understanding is that more effort could also actually lead to exhaustion and high concentration would take effort, not lack it. Is it possible to go over this once again, once again, please? Thank you. We're talking about energy, I suppose. I mean, to understand effort is a word that's a bit um, ambiguous, but we're talking about energy, I suppose. How much energy you have. If you've got a lot of energy, you'll be distracted. If you... Uh, If you, if you put out effort, you'll use up all your energy, and yes, you'll become exhausted. That's what it means. When you've worked really hard, you become exhausted because you've used all your energy. So the mind is kind of like that, or it doesn't really matter. That's not really the point. The point is, when you don't have enough energy, uh, you, you get tired. That's the point. It's not concentration. Concentration isn't to blame... Uh, because your concentration concentration isn't going to help you when you're tired. Is the point? Uh, and to an extent, I mean, the idea is that it's called concentration when you're tired. It's a kind of concentration without effort when you have concentration but no energy involved in it you don't have the effort um, we just talked about this today actually um, <coughs> about right concentration it's surrounded by right effort and right mindfulness so so and I quoted this on Facebook I think um, concentration is like the person reaching up to let's look at the quote Concentration is like reaching up to the object, to the apple, right? So pick flowers. So there's a tree, a flowering tree, a chumbuck tree. Chumbuck. I know what a chumbuck tree is. But couldn't reach the flowers. <coughs> and that's concentration. Effort. So effort is this guy who bends down and lets concentration get up on his back. And mindfulness stands by and, and, and supports concentration and keeps it from from uh, keeps it from wavering, keeps it from falling, right? So concentration without effort doesn't get anywhere. It's this mind that's just stuck there. And so it might flit around, but it doesn't ever uh, reach out to anything. It doesn't ever so it falls asleep, right? It enters into kind of a trance, in a sense, which I guess is what you think of sleep as. 
um, but with energy the mind, the concentration is able to focus on things, is able to get up and focus on things but without mindfulness to direct it or to keep it the concentration still flits from thing to thing but uh, it, it, my concentration is the the focusing in a sense. I mean, it's, it's really a, uh, really these things only come you're only really able to experience them in a good way when they come together because all, all three of them are powerless without the others I guess you could say although mindfulness sort of leading the way but they really have to come together uh, but that's the characteristic of having a lot of concent having concentration. Maybe not a lot. It can't be a lot. I guess that's the point: is you can't have a lot of concentration without effort, because the concentration can't become powerful. Um, but when you're lacking effort and your concentration isn't to blame, uh, you, you know, isn't a problem, or is or isn't a problem, you, you get tired because you don't have effort. On the other hand, if you don't have concentration. You have a lot of you have, you have a lot of effort, or your effort is your energy. You have a lot of energy. You get distracted. I don't know. I mean, it's not that hard for me to understand. Maybe a little bit, I'm having a little trouble explaining it. But you know, when you're when you're when you have a lot of concentration, your mind is is heavy. It get, it gets stuck on things. Or it gets stuck not on things, but it gets stuck in its mode. And it requires effort to get up and reach out to the object. So, I mean, a good example is when you're meditating. To actually say to yourself, rising, falling, takes effort. Um, you have to use the effort to pick up your mind, put it on the object. Ante, what would be a nice Buddhist salutation for English Buddhists? Over here in Sri Lanka, we commonly say Arawan Sarane, but the translation, may the noble triple gem be your refuge, sounds a bit too long. Nice Buddhist salutation for English Buddhists. I hope you know me well enough to think to know that I'm going to say something like, Hi. A good, nice Buddhist. Salutation would be, hi, how are you? You didn't expect a serious response, did you? That's all I got for you, sorry. At least English Buddhists would understand what that means. How should one practice the four supportive meditations in your tradition? I've done videos on that, so I'd rather refer you to the videos rather than have to go over it all again. In walking meditation, I sometimes slightly lift my left foot before I finish noting the stepping of my right foot. I do this because it feels natural in the way I shift my weight to prepare to step forward. Am I correct in thinking that this is a bad technique, or is it overthinking? 
I keep trying to not slightly lift my opposite foot before the finish of stepping, but what results is an awkwardly slow walking from a slightly leaning back position. Is this more correct? Well, maybe you should do... Yes, yes it's more correct, but maybe you should do um, shorter steps. If you find yourself lifting your other foot, it's usually a sign that you're walking too long. But absolutely, we want to be with one foot from beginning to end. In order to do that, you can't move your other foot. You have to, to know the beginning of the movement, you have to wait till the other foot stops. It's somewhat counterproductive otherwise. Oh, nice. We have a link at the top that says your question might already be answered here or here. That's neat. Sometimes more than one hindrance comes up in meditation. Should I note the clearest one until it is processed, then go on to the next clearest one that occurs during that moment? Thank you for your guidance. Could be. I definitely go for the clearest one, but once it's gone, I prefer that people go back to the... try it. Make, make the first intention to go back to the rising and falling. Now, if there is something else that's still getting, that's immediately getting at you, that's fine, but don't go looking for it. Or don't think, hey, there was another one here, is that still there? Because kind of, that kind of behavior, it's common and it, it becomes seeking, it becomes looking for something to note. So, and, and, and there's, there's problems associated with that, it's distracting. Um, much better to have as your default behavior after something is gone, go back to the rising and falling. And and if you're not able to do that because something is nagging, then then fine. Then yes, go to the next one. But your default should not be to go on to the next one. Your default should be, if it doesn't immediately capture your attention after the first one is gone, you go back to the rising and falling. Don't wait for it to pull you away. If one has realized that there is nothing worth clinging to in life and is now only motivated through selfless interest like easing the suffering of others, do you think it would be wise to move toward becoming a Buddhist monk? It's always wise to move towards becoming a Buddhist monk. There's no better livelihood. I think I'm not biased in saying it's not me saying that as biased. From a Buddhist point of view, there's nothing better than becoming a monk, so if you still have to ask the question, I'd have to wonder, but um, you know, maybe it's just simply not realizing that yes, indeed, becoming a monk is, is uh, ideal. It's not easy in this day and age, but if you can do it, you can find a way. Absolutely. You don't have to wait until you're that state. You don't have to wait until you're, you know, realize that every, that there's nothing. With, that sounds more like an arahant state. At that case, you just naturally become a monk or die. Uh, don't wait. Don't wait until you get to that. Dear Bhante, does the type of food we consume have an effect on our mind and on our medica meditation? Thanks. 
Yeah, potentially. I wouldn't put too much stake in, in the f what types of food we eat, but I'd have some mindfulness in regards to it, not eating overly fatty foods or so on. The more important is that you only eat as much as is necessary. You don't eat too much or too often. That you don't eat. Much more important is the food that goes into your mind. So when you eat foods, it's often feeding your mind, feeding your craving, and not feeding your body. That's important if you're feeding your defilements, feeding your attachments, your addictions. That's going to have a far greater impact on your practice. Don't worry too much about food. Don't worry more about the food that you put into your mind. What if someone who is a female cheated on her partner in sexual misconduct? Will she be born in hell like Queen Malika? Let's say she was already no longer with the person she transgressed and that has refrained from dishonesty in relationships. Now Queen Malika went to hell for a very short time, for seven days. I mean it's a Dhammapada story so take it with a grain of salt. But uh, she only went there for seven days and then she went to heaven. She was actually a really good person. But um, I think the big reason she went to hell is not because of the evil. It was because she lied to her husband, the king, and she never actually told him about it. So she felt guilty. She kept the secret all the way to her grave. And when she died, of course, that, that the guilt that she had been carrying around was actually quite weighty. So a big lesson that we could get from that story is, it's a funny story if you those of you who haven't heard the story, I recommend looking it up. I won't go into it, but it's a really funny, the sort of the thing that she ended up, uh, that got her in trouble. <coughs> it's not a PG, it's not a PG story anyway. Um, but the, the lesson that we gain from that is to be honest and to, you know, to seek out sort of forgiveness and to do our part in affirming yes I've done something wrong um, to ask forgiveness from those who you've wronged and to uh, move on you know? so to to not live a lie right and I guess that's that's the sort of thing that happens when you cheat on someone and then never tell them and live in the relationship even if it destroys the relationship, it's important that... I mean, I'm not even sure that it is, but I would think in most cases it's important that they find out. You could argue, well, it's in the past, I'm not going to do it again, so why should I hurt them? Well, I mean, the very fact that if they knew the truth, they wouldn't be happy. I mean, it's just there's setting yourself up for guilt, for the most part. But, okay, so you're saying if you're no longer with the person, so that's the deal with Malika, but if you're no longer with the person, um, you know, I, you can't say what some act is going to do to you. We know that bad deeds lead to bad consequences. If you do lots of good deeds, they can outweigh and, and nullify the bad consequences. So if you read about karma, there's karma which nullifies other karma, and that's possible if you do lots of good deeds. 
But in regards to that person, you might want to ask forgiveness or let them know. I would say that would be useful. Hmm. Just to clear your conscience. I mean, we're not, it's, it's not really, it's not really uh, uh, cut and dried like that in Buddhism. So I'm not convinced that that is entirely necessary, but it seems reasonable in many cases that that would ass assuage your guilt and allow the person to to know of your transgression and to admit that you what you did was was wrong to them. But no, I mean, you, it's learn to forgive yourself and overcome and become a better person. It's really the most important. It's a good question. Bhante, I have been thinking a lot about becoming a monk. I am a transgen transgender man. Do you know of any monasteries, at least in the U.S., that would be accepting of me? Thank you. No, unfortunately, that not in our tradition, and I'm pretty sure not in most traditions. I'm not sure what transgender means. Um, and I mean, of course, it depends what you mean by transgender. Have you had a sex change operation? If you have, there's not many monasteries that would accept you. It's an interesting question, though. I mean, the biggest problem is technical, and you, you, you run into a lot of these technical problems with becoming a monk, and people are outraged at non-acceptance, but they're all technical, and it's because you're living, being a monk, or the monkhood is flawed, it's, it's artificial, it's nothing to do, it's not, not everything about being a monk is about morality, it's about setting up an artificial structure, uh, 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 something that is admittedly artificial it's not natural becoming a monk is an artifice and so there's a lot of artificial rules that aren't uh, directly related to morality but there are reasons for it you know you can't you have to be careful accepting homosexuals because part of be part of the artifice of being a monk is to get away from the object of your sexual desire so if you allow homosexuals I mean what's it's reducing the benefit and it's setting yourself up for, for problems and it's one of the biggest problems now in, in monastic Theravada monastic circles there's a lot of homosexual, homosexual behavior homosexuals ordain partly because they can't fit into their overly repressive societies partly because they're, they're excited by the idea of being around other men maybe not sexually but there is an attraction there and and uh, well and mostly because they're corrupt I mean they're not talking about just any homosexual people who are oh I don't know I mean people who are human and ordinary individuals but if you take a heterosexual man who's kind of corrupt behavior and you put him in a, in a monastery well, the worst he's going to do is you know, masturbate or whatever. But if you put a homosexual and a bunch of homosexuals, if they're if they're not engaged in meditation, anyway, it's getting off on a tangent. But it's an example. Um, 
homosexuality you have to be careful about. Now, transgender. So the question is, is, is this person to be understood uh, from a Buddhist point of view, from a monastic point of view, as a man or as a woman? I don't even know. I'm a transgender man. I assume that means, it's funny, just yesterday we had this conference and I was, we actually, one of the, one of the workshops was on gender. And so we talked a bit about transgender. But I assume that means this person was a woman, it was uh, was or had the the female sex, and that's how we're supposed to look at it. But their gender was male, meaning their how they thought of themselves was male. So, you call yourself a transgender man, I assume means, and you could you could, you know, but well, it doesn't really matter. Let's assume, but but uh, now you have had some sex change, operation, what we call gender something something. Surgery, I don't know, reassignment, um, and so now you're the transfer. You've had a transformation physically to be more of a man. I thought that was uncommon. I thought it was more like you become a woman. I don't really know. Um, okay, but let's assume it's that way. So you become a man. So how do we how do we understand you to be a man? problem is technically we don't understand you to be a man. We'd understand you to have the sex of a woman. See, Buddhism doesn't look at how your mind is, and this was interesting for me going to this workshop because um, I don't think of myself, and we had to we had to introduce ourselves, and there was an option to uh, express which pronouns you use for yourself. This is a big thing now. And so I said I use he him pronouns, but it it felt kind of weird because I don't really I don't think of myself as a man uh, in the way that most people do. I think, uh, and I think that comes from meditation. My sense when I think, I mean that sort of thing co does come from meditation. So we're not really concerned with how you see yourself mentally, because we consider that to be. Uh, baggage that gender is something that you give up but sex is something sex a person's physical gender is something that is um, is a deciding factor and it points out the flaw in monastic activity because what do you do with a homosexual person or a person who is physically male but attracted to males or physically female but attracted to females it's that, I mean that's much more important um, and so that extent um, if that's not a problem I guess I guess looking at this situation then you would have to accept your physical gender because Buddhism Buddhist monasticism looks at your physical gender it doesn't look at your mental perception of which gender you are um, and again that seems somewhat weird but it's um, it's it's because and the reason for defending it is because it for the most part works and again this is so it shows you the flaw and the limitation of monasticism but to do it any other way would would make monastic life much more complicated. I mean, even allowing women made things more complicated. And so you say, well, we can't stop women from ordaining. 
Sure, yes, absolutely. The Buddha, in the end, gave in, but he was very quite clear that it was much simpler when it was just men, right? Heterosexual men, especially. It's quite easy. But then you think, well, all women want to ordain, and women ended up becoming a great monastic system, but they had to be separate, and there had to be... It was not, not perfect by any means. But okay, so there was the allowance for women. So then we say, well, are we going to allow homosexuals? There's no rule against it, but it's problematic. Uh, and then you say, well, are we going to allow people who are transgendered? Um, and so if you say that, well, a person who identifies as a man should allow... It makes things more complicated, you see, and it breaks down the, the importance important benefit of becoming a monk um, in regards to being removed from the object of your attraction. To live in a community that is free from that element of your life. So it allows you to... And people have criticized this as well, that it's just escapism. And I understand that, but it's also protectionism. You're protecting yourself as you admit to yourself that you're not able to be around the object of your sexual desire. And so you spend time off in meditation and you become strong and then hopefully you're better able to. Well, not hopefully, but I, you know, through the practice you're better able to, to deal with that. So I hope that this sort of points out that there are some some problems, and these are the issues that we think about in that regard. It makes things much simpler to only allow people, if someone is physically male, and that is, that's based very much on them being born male and still having all the qualities of being male. So if they surgically remove their penis, we don't call them a man and we don't call them a woman. It's problematic at that point. And they generally, sorry to say, won't be allowed into either monastic community. And with a female, I don't know how it works, because you can't, I don't know if you can surgically add a, a male organ, can you? So it might be easier for a woman to go back to being a woman physically. And as for their mental identification as a man, honestly, and this is what I was sort of trying to get at, I, I spoke up in this workshop and I kind of made a bit of a fool of myself because I didn't really understand the issues, but well, I certainly wasn't well received, but um, the idea that best would be to just learn to let go of how you see yourself, which gender you see yourself, because gender is not in the end that big of a deal. That's our understanding. I mean, I understand that other people feel differently and there's this thing called gender dysphasia. Dysphasia? That's the feeling that you're in the wrong gender, you're in the wrong body. And apparently it can be quite severe, but I, you know, as a Buddhist monk and meditator, I would suggest that that's something that one can deal with through meditation and learn to let go of, along with sexuality in general, right? If you can, if you can become celibate, mentally celibate, you can also learn to let go of the fact that you feel like you're better off in a different body. So uh, this is a reason why I would not recommend sexual re gender reassignment 
I would recommend looking at it as we look at everything else. It's nothing prejudiced against such people. But any other mental state, learn to let go of it. It's fine. You think you're better off, you think you conceive of yourself as being a woman or a man and you're not? That's okay. It's just thoughts. It's just conceptions. They're not inherently wrong or bad or unpleasant. But yeah, becoming a monk, it's technic there's technical problems there that probably would prevent you. But if you want to, if you want to write to me your your actual situation because it's not clear to me, we could perhaps work it out. But you might not be happy with that. You might not be happy with what I've said. In which case, I apologize. But I'm fairly set in that idea. That uh, you have to stick with the physical gender and learn to let go of the mental representation. Certainly not a very PC thing to say. And just a nice comment, but not a question. So, move on. Hey, I've read that celibacy is a need to attain liberation and enlightenment, and also that celibacy increases one's willpower and vigor. Is that true? Celibacy, I mean, no, no moral, no act or speech is necessary to become enlightened. It's all about the mind. So you can't say that about celibacy. You can't say that about killing, stealing. These are fence posts. They're not the fence. What you need is wholesome mind states. And so it's quite possible that someone could have sexual relations in the morning and become enlightened in the afternoon. It's highly unlikely, but it's possible. Um, now the problem with, with um, sexual activity is that it cultivates unwholesome mind states, obviously. I mean, what we consider to be unwholesome, meaning greed, craving, that kind of thing, delusion as well. Um, and so that's going to detract from your potential ability to become enlightened. On the other hand, an enlightened being could have sexual activity. They could be raped or could be sexually assaulted. So the point being that it's not the act. It's the mind state. And uh, because it's far too complex, you can't point to physical or verbal acts and say that that is the abstention from that is necessary. You have to think of the mind states behind it. But, uh, so yes, an ordinary person living in the world, having regular sexual activity, could theoretically become enlightened. Now, it gets in your way. It's a detriment to your practice. So absolutely, celibacy is an important important aspect. And I guess I should just say that yes, from all intents and purposes, you really have to be celibate. Maybe that would have been a better answer. As for increasing one's power and vigor, not really concerned with that. Maybe, yes, it's not really a Buddhist concept. Not to a great extent, except insofar as craving gets in your way. Craving just decreases your mental power and vigor. You go with that. Okay, we got way too many. Oh no, we've only got a few. Let's go through them quickly. I've been taking too much time. 
Hello, I've been a theistic Satanist for six years, but I like to live my life by the tenets of Lavayan Satanism to a point, but I also like the teachings of Buddha. Is there a way to practice both ways to live by without sacrificing self-preservation or the selflessness of Buddhism? You really can't combine much with Buddhism. You either follow the Buddhist path or you don't. Is that, is that right to say? Uh, I mean, normally we don't say that. It's okay, you can be Christian, you can be Muslim, but you know, Buddhism is complete, it's a complete path. If there's something that you're not getting in Buddhism that you're getting somewhere else, the, the reason why it's not in Buddhism, from our point of view, is because it's not necessary or not helpful. If Satanism is completely compatible with Buddhism and there's no um, differences, then fine, but then you're just practicing Buddhism. So, conditionally, yes, you can. There's no need to convert to Buddhism or, or give up your old ways. And um, you certainly don't have to give up your culture and your activities. But to really get the most out of Buddhism, you have to commit to the avowedly perfect uh, framework of Buddhism. I mean, there'd be no reason a Buddhist wouldn't think, well, I should also pick up Satanism. Um, you might find expressions of wholesome things in other religions and take up other expressions and um, presentations of certain truths, but um, it would have to be limited so like you might agree with the Sermon on the Mount, but really only because it, it's in line with the Buddhist teaching. So you're talking about sacrificing self-preservation, or you're talking about self-preservation, which is a problem for a Buddhist, and it's going to get in the way of your Buddhist practice, because we're not really interested in... Not too... You know, it depends exactly what you mean on self-preservation, but if you actually are thinking of the self, and, and the soul and so on it will get in your way I don't know too much about Satanism except that it's for most people it's a secular thing and it's about rational science and being a good person and all that so I think a lot like humanism which uh, I think humanism actually is quite compatible in many ways but I don't know I wouldn't want to complicate things I would say Investigate Buddhism, and if you think it's good, just follow Buddhism. That would be my naive recommendation. And I assume for many people it's not adequate recommendation, but certainly the best advice I could give. Give up everything okay, I guess, else. I guess I really didn't know what Satanism was. I thought it was actually worshipping Satan. Yeah, but they have the idea. I don't know. I, don't I guess know. I don't know anything about that. For many people, Satanism is, is quite secular. It's not really about okay. worship. Bhante, I visited a monastery the other day. The monk robes were being offered to the monks. The trousers and shirt I wore were worth about $10 each, and the robes several times that much. Do you think the tail is wagging the dog, or is this vichicha? I doubt as a hindrance in my mind. Hmm. Um, right. 
Is that doubt? Do you think this is the... T I don't understand the tail is wagging the dog. I think he's asking, is it, is it wrong that the monks got luxurious robes that were worth more than a layperson's right. clothes? Yeah, no, I, get, I guess I get that implication. But, um, no, it's not. Why would it be? What's wrong with getting good things? Now, having said that, there is something... There is a there is a problem, right, with uh, with luxury. If a person gets luxurious items, they can be very much attached to them. Fortunately, it's easy to get attached to them. Fortunately, um, monks have specific rules about robes. The robes have to be quite uh, simple. So the quality of the cloth might be great, and because it's a specialized item, to get a to get a person to make it is actually quite expensive. I mean, the thing about your trousers and shorts is they're made in a factory in Asia somewhere by people working slave labor wages, and they're being pumped out by the hundred or thousand or hundred thousand. So that's why they're so cheap. But if you commission someone to make your trousers and shirt, it would cost, I would say, quite a bit more than, well, actually I don't know, but um, it would cost more. But there's, but, so that's one thing, but that's not really the argument, the important argument. The important argument is, uh, regardless of all that, the monk robe is still uh, generally unpleasant or, or generally a difficult article to become attached to because it's just a rectangle. You can get a pair of, well, get a t-shirt that is, you know, made of cheap and, and um, you know, poor quality material, but you can be very attached to it because it has like a slogan on it or because it's uh, bright colors or because it shows off your pectoral muscles, right? Because it shows off your chest, right? your breasts, because it shows off your legs. Um, the monk robes are designed in such a way as to avoid a lot of the problems that come from clothes. So point being, even if they are expensive, say, and there's not really a problem if that's what you're getting at for the monks to that they become attached to them I mean we have to first as soon as we get them we have to mark them with a pen despoil them um, the color itself can't be some can't be any any of the many beautiful type beautiful colors if you're you know, just thinking about how expensive it is, then uh, I don't think that's a problem. I don't think that's considered a problem. The fact that people have to spend a lot of money, theoretically, to support the monks, it's actually not true. They actually, it actually doesn't take a lot of money, because you could argue against that as well. But even if it did, it's not really a problem. I mean, people are very happy to support the monks. Even if it did, suppose, cost a lot of money, people are doing it because they want to. 
because they believe that these monks are doing them of great service, just teaching and, and uh, even just studying and, and even just practicing to become enlightened. So they really want to, and it's a great thing for them to support these monks. But, okay, if you consider my robes, I mean, these are actually quite expensive relatively. Actually, this one, this one was made by Tina, so it's, it's, I don't, but I think she spent quite a bit of money actually on this and on even just shipping it back to me was uh, expensive. I mean, I think she put quite a bit of time and money into making this robe. Um, but, you know, it's a robe that's going to last me for a year and it's the only thing I wear for a year. So my whole wardrobe, uh, she made, she made my entire wardrobe for a year. Say, how many shirts do you own? Do you wear the same shirt? Some people do, but do you wear the same shirt every day? I mean, most people don't. Most people have a wardrobe. And I guess just just pointing out the fact that it's actually in the long run not that expensive. And the the the, w the worst problem we have is that people want to give us more robes, and we're not allowed to take extra robes. So to even have the opportunity to give a monk a robe is is uh, so it's quite rare. Um, yeah, the fact that it's all we're allowed to wear, the fact that we're only allowed to wear it in certain ways, we're not allowed to wear it or you know make it look in any special way. So I'm not exactly sure the, the criticism you have, which one of those that it is, but. I don't think that any of them are really valid. It's quite common for people unfamiliar to the whole tradition to... Well, in any way, it's, it's quite common for people to be critical of, it, of things. And I guess, ultimately, you want to give up being critical of anything. So even if people are doing things that seem quite corrupt, or if there is corruption, it's not worth your time to be critical of it. It doesn't help you in your practice. So I'm not sure if it's Wichikicha, I think it's more cynicism. It's usually delusion, like this conceit, a feeling that you're better than these people. Huh, look at those people doing that. It's usually conceit-based. If I can just add one thing, as you know, as a layperson, you know, who wants to give, I mean, you, it's it's part of a layperson's practice to give up and, and you know, and to give something to the monks. I mean, you want it to be something good. Mm. It's, it's the monk's problem to not get right. attached to it. But as a lay person, you want to, you know, you wouldn't want to give something that was, you know, inferior if you had the opportunity to get something that was nice, I would think. Well, that was the other thing I was going to say, is actually monks are, were told by the Buddha to strive for uh, rag robes, to try our best to take robes that are discarded, cloth that is discarded, doesn't happen that often anymore, but uh, ideally that's so. So, I mean, to that extent, there is something to what you're saying that perhaps you may be saying that, you know, things have moved quite far away from the original intention. I get a sense that that might be what you're saying, that we've moved far away from the original intention of, of living in poverty, right? And I think that's absolutely true. But I don't think it has so much to do with the robes. I don't think robes can get you there. Um, they can and they may if you start to f you know there are monks that I know who um, make their robes up all to be really nice somehow 
but it's quite difficult to do. And for the most part, there's you know it's it's very much other things like Mercedes Benz or you know, private jets. But as far as robes, aren't aren't there certain fabrics that are okay, including silk? Yeah, silk is allowed. Of course, yeah, silk is allowed. Silk is the worst. You, you would never want to make a robe out of refined silk. Raw silk would be great, and I know a monk who has raw silk because it's quite warm, actually. But you know the difference, right? The raw silk and then the, what's the other one called? I think it's refined or something. The silky silk. The silky silk is the worst because it doesn't stay on. It falls off all the time. I know a monk who had them, and he couldn't keep his robes on. It was ridiculous. It's a problem. <laughs> Very expensive, but they're, they're the worst thing to wear. But we talked about when I was looking to get a double-layered robe, silk was one of the best materials they could offer because it's quite warm, apparently. But wool is the best. And wool is much cheaper. Silk is ridiculous. Silk, you need these worms to make silk. And then they all get eaten. They eat those worms. Who eats the worms, Bonte? Uh, silk farmers. Yeah. I didn't know that either. Have you knowledge about meditation for children? How to help children holding right view without ability of understanding? Well, I actually have a DVD and a, well, a series of videos on YouTube on how to meditate for children. If you look it up, you might find it. So, yeah, and, and in fact, just this morning I was teaching uh, in Mississauga. I was teaching meditation to a bunch of Sri Lankan kids. It's funny talking to them, because they're all Buddhist, but I asked them, and they're too shy, so I said, who's Buddhist? Hold up your hand, and only one of them held up their hand. I said, none of you are Buddhist? Oh. Right. Asking them questions about their religion is quite interesting, because um, they take it for granted, I suppose. I mean, anyone that's born in a religion doesn't have generally the same sense as one who, who, who well, an adult or, or even one who acquires the religion purposefully. It's, if you've never had to acquire a religion purposefully, you don't have the same sense. It's much easier, it's much more common to take it for granted. And so especially with, with children, they really had never thought about what Buddhism is, what it means, why they call themselves Buddhists. I said, why are you, you know, why do you call yourself Buddhist? He said, well, because my parents are. And I said, well, that, you know that doesn't make you Buddhist. <laughs> yeah. Forcing them to think about it. But I did teach the meditation, very much based on that series. So I'd recommend reading my, watching my series on how to meditate or giving it to kids. I've had some good reviews about it. I haven't had much negative response except from adults who thought it was a bit weird that I was telling them about magical powers, but I think it's awesome. Hi Bhante, I recently watched a video of a Sikh explaining that during meditation he experiences numbness and a tingling sensation at the top or back of his head, and that this region acts as a gateway to the divine. Do you experience, do experienced Buddhist meditators experience this physical sensation too? Yeah, I'm not, I'm surprised that you asked this question. I mean, in Buddhism that would be understood as a feeling. 
If you have a tingling sensation, you would remind yourself feeling, feeling, or tingling, tingling, and that would be that. And it's not considered special by us. Nor, do we, nor are we looking for a gateway to the divine for, for certain. Dear Pante, do you know of any Buddhist enlightened beings that I can read about? I have already read the story of Milarapa. I would recommend um, great disciples of the Buddha. I mean, the b best source is those that were in the time of the Buddha. Anything after that is uh, sketchy at best, and, and you find that anyone who was enlightened would be very loath to talk about it. And anyone who does claim to be enlightened, it's questionable as to whether they actually are. So I would recommend going back to the time of the Buddha, you have great disciples. A book, there's a book that's an anthology of great disciples of the Buddha. It's really good to read. Um, it's available from Wisdom Publications. Anyway. It's on Amazon, I think. I think I actually have it not too far from me. I can hold it up. Much of it is also on the internet, or some of it is also on the internet. You can find stories, um, some of the old stories that were told, like the description of Sariputta's life, Moggallana's life, that kind of thing. The, the story of Sariputta's life is a really good one to read about. If the ultimate goal of all existence is to attain liberation from that existence, then why are we here in the first place? Is the entire universe a tragic misfortune that we need to gradually recover from over lifetimes and eons? Sorry, this is a speculative question. I mean, my answer is I don't know, and, and but I think it falls under questions that we're just not going to answer because it's speculative. I mean, it may not seem speculative, but you have to remember we're here to answer questions about meditation. We don't really care about why we're here. The problem is that we are here. That's what we're concerned with. Do Buddhists have experiences of universal consciousness? We don't believe that such a thing exists, so no. And you're all caught up in your questions, Monday. Okay. Thank you, everyone. I deleted a bunch of questions, and I understand that sometimes my answers are rather abrupt and apologize. But uh, I think I think what we start to see over time is that there aren't that many questions that are all that important. There are some good questions, but what I mean to say by that is that it's not so much about asking questions as it is about uh, answering your doubts or or starting to get a sense of right practice and so as you as you practice you have fewer questions and the questions that we do answer are mostly just a support to get you there and once you're there you well we also have these other functional questions like the one sunk asks are kind of, are always interesting but um, I, I guess I just don't want to give too much of a have a sense that we should think, try and think up questions to ask. Questions should be there for the purpose of overcoming doubt and helping you get back on track so that you can find the answers for yourself because ultimately 
The answers to the most important questions are not going to come from me, they're going to come from you. The answers will come from your meditation practice. But that doesn't mean stop asking questions. It does mean if you're asking more and more questions, it might be a sign that your meditation's not going so well or that you're, you're neglecting your meditation. Anyway, thank you all for your interest and for continuing to pursue the good, the right, the pure, continuing to strive for freedom from suffering. And thanks, Raman, for helping out with tonight. Thank you, Bhakti. Good night. Good night.